Shadows, we interviewed Dr. Jody Cullum, professor of psychology at Western University in London, Ontario, Canada. Jody is famous for studying reaching and the intention to act on objects in an fMRI scanner. This was a very difficult set of experiments to run because she had to in invent a device that people could grab while inside the magnet. We interviewed Dr. Cullum at, in St. Pete's Beach, Florida, while we were all attending the 2019 Vision Sciences Society meeting. This is a society for which Jody Cullum was recently elected to a four-year term as um, on the board of directors. Prior to our meeting, Dr. Cullum brainstormed some topics she was interested in discussing, which you will hear guided our conversation and we refer to as we're talking. We chose to interview Dr. Cullum after sending hundreds of students to her website for career advice. I first met Jody while we were both guests in Taiwan giving two 90-minute talks during a week in which we bonded over excellent fish and science. After these interactions, I checked out her website and found it to be a treasure trove of great stuff about career development. I think you'll find that Jody has even more insightful stuff to say in person. Okay, we are in beautiful St. Pete's Beach at VSS, and we're, as you already know, we're extremely lucky to have uh, Jody Cullum here with us. Um, and I think Jody was going to start probably by telling us a little bit of how she got interested in psychology and vision science and um, a little bit about her story of becoming a scientist. Sure. I think, uh, like many people, my journey was a series of serendipitous, um, <laughs> chancy kinds of opportunities that arose um, that, that kind of steered me towards something. I, that, uh, that made, enabled me to find where my passions lay. So I started off as an undergraduate in the University of Calgary. I knew all along I was interested in psychology and biology. Neuroscience wasn't really a field in the era in which I started. So I went to university and I took an intro psych course and all the first year science courses and I hated intro psych because <laughs> I thought it was totally flaky. So then I decided I don't want to do this psychology crap. I want to go do, do something more serious. So then I transferred into zoology and then I got really bored because I was dissecting uh, sea cucumbers and things like that and right. couldn't really see the point. And I was actually going to drop out of uh, my undergraduate degree except I had student loans and I decided that uh, since I didn't want to go home and live with my parents I would take one more semester and only take courses that interested me ah. and so I signed up for a bunch of neuroscience courses um, neuropsychology courses and I had this professor who told all these amazing stories about different neuropsychological phenomena like right. unilateral neglect and prosopagnosia and all these things and I thought it was really cool and then I thought okay I want to be a neurologist uh -huh. and so then I started volunteering in a head injured relearning uh, rehabilitation center uh, and I realized I was really bad with my people skills at that stage and I wasn't good at working with patients especially frontal lobe patients who couldn't inhibit their urge to reach out and grab young female undergraduates. <laughs> uh -oh. yeah, it's understandable. <laughs> right. uh, and so then I didn't know what I was going to do, but I stumbled on working in a vision lab in Don Klein's vision lab and, um, and then worked with uh, Jane Raymond uh, for a while on a summer scholarship. And, and then I thought this was really cool. I really like doing the science stuff. And uh, 
Jane came into the lab one day and she said, you should go to grad school. I said, oh, what's grad school? Um, <laughs> yeah. And she was studying motion perception at the time. So I thought, okay, well, you know, talk to some of the people who are studying motion perception. And I sent off, in those days, there wasn't even a whole lot of email. So I sent off a bunch of snail mail letters to different mm -hmm. professors. And one of them was uh, Patrick Cavanaugh, who had been in Montreal and then had moved to Harvard recently. And my mail got forwarded. And he said, well, apply here. And I thought, oh, okay, I'll never get into Harvard, but sure, I'll send in an application. And long story short, I ended up uh, in that lab doing, starting off doing um, some, some behavioral vision, uh, psychophysics. Um, and it was kind of fun, but I felt like I didn't have, and this is something maybe we can touch on later, I felt like I didn't have a lot of ideas. I was working in this field, psychophysics, that mm -hmm. had, you know, a century plus of different right. things people had done, and I couldn't really see what I could do that would be different. And then brain imaging came along, so functional MRI uh, was discovered, and I had an opportunity to do that, and then that was really a a fantastic opportunity because I'd always been interested in the brain but hadn't wanted to work with animals and so I had this chance then to to study the brain in humans um, and it was also a good opportunity for me because it was such a new field and um, there was so much to do that it, I kind of lost some of that feeling that I didn't know what to do that everything right. had been done uh, and, and, you know, looking back on it now, it's certainly not the case. Everything had been done. I just didn't know how to find what hadn't <laughs> been done that was interesting to do. Right, right. <laughs> that is a hard bit. Yeah. So um, through the generosity of um, a colleague, Nancy Canwisher, who enabled me to get into brain imaging, I started doing some of that, and I really fell in love with the brain. I still get amazed whenever I pull up data and realize I'm looking at uh, what a human brain is doing. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Uh, and then I went and did a, a postdoctoral fellowship. Um, I decided that I wanted to change gears a little bit. I'd been studying how vision is used to perceive the world, um, but I'd been influenced by some ideas from my colleague Mel Goodale, um, who was proposing that really in the end all vision subserves action. So it doesn't matter what you see and what you think, except insofar as you act, uh, because evolution uh, selects based on actions rather than perceptions. And of course, you can have a lot of sophisticated perception and cognition that informs action, but I, I thought that was an interesting perspective. So I went to do a postdoc with Mel um, and, and learned about the action system. And then um, I ended up at, at that time, um, brain imaging wasn't, there weren't that many places that had brain imaging. And um, so I ended up staying there as a faculty member, which is a, a fairly rare situation, but it was a, a good fit because there weren't that many neuroimagers and there weren't that many neuroimaging sites. So I'd, I'd found a place that I liked and I ended up staying there. Mm -hmm. And that was uh, 22 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> wow, well, that's an exciting story. Um, so we had talked to you before about um, whether you had any particularly... Um, I don't want to call it pet peeve or soapbox, but any points of uh, training your own students and postdocs that uh, you think are particularly sticky, maybe, right, that people seem to struggle with. Um, and uh, would you like to tell us about some of those? Yeah, I thought one topic that might be interesting to discuss that I, I haven't heard a whole lot about generally in um, academic advice things. Um, 
as I mentioned earlier, you know, I felt when I was a young scientist, like I didn't know how to come up with ideas. So when I was in Jane Raymond's lab, I had a, a summer scholarship. She was off on sabbatical and she said, okay, well, go read some papers and figure out an experiment to do. And I was completely paralyzed by, <laughs> oh my God, where do I start? And right. so I read all these papers and I was trying to find some little footnote to something that yeah. someone had had done that would take it you know one minute step farther mm-hmm. um and, and i worked really hard at this for a couple of weeks and then i was talking to jane and i proposed this idea i'd come up with and she said yeah that's okay no, <laughs> and then she said this line she said ideas are cheap and and mm. at that time i couldn't wrap my head around uh, that right um you know so ideas are cheap what you need to find is the best ideas and and, and it took me a long time to figure out how to do that and I realized both from my own journey and from uh, mentoring other students as they go through that journey that it's something we don't do a very good job generally in psychology and neuroscience programs in teaching people how to pick a research question. And in particular, one way that's often valuable is by going into your data with an open mind Mm -hmm. and looking at what the data is telling you, particularly the things that you didn't expect and how you can use these things that you didn't expect to generate new hypotheses that you can test. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that might be an interesting topic. Students typically get a lot of experience in learning statistics and, and statistics are an essential part of being a scientist. You have to prove that your data are robust enough and reliable enough and and all of that, uh, that that people can believe them. But I think sometimes our education focuses so much on the statistics that we've neglected taking just a bit of time to tell people how do you look at the data before you even bring it into your statistical software and how do you play with your data and, and, and not just how do you do hypothesis testing, but how do you do hypothesis generation either based on data or based on other strategies like just observing the world around you and introspecting and um, reading the papers and seeing where are the holes. We tend to teach students to focus on what has been done, but uh, it's also important, I think, to look at a field and, and, and think about, well, there's all this stuff on one topic, but there's this whole other topic that's neglected. And, and that's also, I think, a valuable science strategy. That's been my own strategy is rather than following the crowd, I'm always looking for where, where are there interesting questions that nobody's looking at and, right. and going in that direction. It means, one, you don't have to read as much. Right, yeah. <laughs> and two, you can be a little more playful and creative. Right. And, and I've certainly found that part of it fun, uh, albeit challenging at times. Right. Yeah. I, I, I have not gotten good at dis- uh, at figuring out how to teach people to do that, but my metaphor for what you don't want to do is youth soccer and have everyone bunch up around the ball. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so you kind of want to spread out. So we're covering lots of, of territory. I mean, one thing I've tried to do is, is uh, ask or point out to trainees that uh, settings like we're in right now at a conference is a great opportunity to to sit down for 12 to 15 minutes and think through someone else's problem and think about okay so wait their 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 whole project's based on these assumptions are those assumptions founded or true or what's the evidence for those um and that that can serve as something like exercise for Mm -hmm. hypothesis generation um uh but uh 
but I, I, but my own experience was as I got good at that after I could do it. So yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And so I don't know how you, how I, it's, it's less clear to me how you get the initial competence at, at the, at the task. But, um, you know, but like you say, reading, thinking think about a, what the... a big part of it, and this is something too, that I had a lot of insecurities as a young grad student when I would come. In those days, it was a, a different meeting. It was the Arvo meeting, but mm-hmm. I would come to these and I would just feel like there was so much I didn't know. And there was so much I didn't know. Right. Um, and, and it wasn't, I guess, till I transitioned to a role as a postdoc that I realized I was starting to, to learn some things. So I'd go to all these talks and a lot of it was over my head and I didn't understand the jargon and... But, but with those kind of things, I think you have to just persist for a while and just keep going to the talks. And even if you only understand 60% of it, if you figure out what the 40% you don't know is and you keep going, then, then it starts to complete. And at some point, for me, it was in the postdoc years when I switched labs. And then I realized there were things I knew that some of my lab mates didn't know because I'd been in a different environment. And so I think a lot of the, the creativity, too, just comes from reading a lot, talking a lot going to things, being exposed to a huge range of different ideas. And, and the longer you're around, then you just start to be able to make connections. And because we each have our own interests and journeys, you will probably come up with some combination of ideas that at some point are going to click together and you'll, you'll see um, connections between things that other people haven't seen. But it, it takes a while. It's hard at, at first, um, reflecting what it was like to be uh, an early graduate student, uh, to see uh, that, that uh, you know, I always felt really uncreative uh, as an initial graduate student, and, and it was more just a discovery of how to be creative. It wasn't that I didn't have it. It just took some time to mature. Well, is it, this is sort of a byproduct of the apprenticeship model that we use in grad school, right? So how do you... What do you do when you have an uh, early grad student? Do you hand them an existing project? Do you wean them off of your ideas onto their own ideas? How do you scaffold this for your grad students to try to, like when is it appropriate for them to start having their own ideas, you know? Or when should they expect that out of themselves? Or when should they go rogue? <laughs> <laughs> As your website says. <laughs> well, I think, um, See you know, if you cross yourself up. <laughs> I, I sort of, my, my mental model of apprenticeship is sort of like teaching a kid how to ride a bicycle. So, yeah. you know, the first, the first while you're holding onto the bike and pushing mm-hmm. them along. And then mm-hmm. at some point uh, you're following closely behind to make sure that they don't fall over. And then you let go when they're not. They're looking. relying on the training <laughs> wheels. And then, you yeah. know, like most of us learning to ride a bike at some point, they're riding it and they don't realize that you're, <laughs> that yeah. you're a hundred feet back. Right. Um, uh, uh, so I, I start with honor students and master's students. I'll usually, we'll talk about some of the different things that are going on in the lab and see if, if uh, one particular direction excites them and I might shape them a little bit more in a direction there. And then, um, and then my hope is that as they mature, once they've kind of learned the field through their first project, that they'll start to take ownership of the project and that they'll... They'll take it in new directions, directions I myself haven't seen. I've had some trainees that have taken the lab in directions I hadn't intended to go, but they they found some cool things and they steered it that way. I guess the other metaphor I sometimes use uh, for the relationship between supervisors and trainees is often kind of like one between parents and kids that they come into the lab, the, the trainees come into the lab and they 
They think that their uh, PI can do no wrong. <laughs> <laughs> right. And they, uh, you know, they worship them and, and think that they're, they're uh, you know, just these amazing gods. And then they get to this stage, you know, typically somewhere partway through the PhD, where they start to see that they, their advisor has flaws and misses some things. And then they go through this teenage phase, the going rogue phase, right. where, yeah. where right. the advisor doesn't know anything and they're going to do it their way. <laughs> yeah. And it's one of the hard things as an advisor sometimes is to, to try to let go and let them do their own thing. And, and usually one, you know, one of two things is going to happen, either... The advisor's going to be right, the student's going to make a mistake, they're going to fall flat on their face, and they're going to learn from it. That's actually a good outcome. Yeah. Or the other is, sometimes the student's right. There have been cases where I've said, oh, that's not going to work, and the student's done it, and it's worked, and I've had to eat crow and say, okay, you were right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Either one's a win, though, really. Either one's a win, yeah. yeah. And I yeah. think it's important to, to give students some, some leeway to make their own mistakes, um, yeah, because uh, it's you. You always learn better from your own mistakes than hearing about other people's. Right, and it's the the system's unpredictable enough uh, that sometimes it turns out differently. Right. Before we go on, I wanted to circle back to what you were saying about how, when early on in your career, you were feeling like there was so much that you don't know, right? And I have some very strong undergrads who um, go through the phase of trying to decide if they're going to go to a PhD program. And I had one come to psychonomics and decide that she didn't feel ready in part because she realized all these things she didn't know by going to all these talks at psychonomics. And I think, um, you know, a strong student is reflective on these issues, but it can be a barrier. It can mm -hmm. actually stop you or be overly discouraging. So I'm wondering if you have any suggestions for a student like that or if you've encountered that before and that you would just suggest like everybody feels this way, you know? Yeah, I think a lot of it is talking to your peers and, and there's this tendency, at least when I was in grad school, I, it wasn't till later that I always thought everybody else was really confident and knew what they were doing and it wasn't till I got farther along and talked to people and realized other people were having the same feelings and that it was just natural. Um, mm -hmm. So I think part of that is just coming to that realization. A big part of it is coming to the realization that it's okay if you don't know something. Um, and I learned a lot from some of my mentors, like people like Nancy Canwisher, who there's something she doesn't, someone's talking about something and they use some term of jargon that she doesn't know. She'll just go, wait, wait, stop, stop. Okay, I'm not going to understand anything else you say until you explain this concept awesome. to me. No shame, just yeah. I don't know what this is. You have to tell me what this is and then we'll move forward. And mm -hmm. and seeing that, that even really influential people like that um, yeah. sometimes felt like they, they, they weren't following what other people did. Um, and that it was okay to stop and ask people rather than pretending you understood what they said. Um, that, that's a big step forward when you can start to do that. So uh, yeah. I would say those two things of just talk to your peers, realize it's it's not unusual. Uh, and it's, it's, it's better to know what you don't know than to pretend you know more than you do. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, that's a really powerful example to see. Yeah. Yeah, I know. So I've, um, I've noticed some of my colleagues really... Uh, use that as a measure of of sometimes how to select personnel which is you know will this person make a good graduate student that is when i was telling them about what we were doing in the lab did they stop me and mm -hmm. say wait a second what was that <laughs> you know <laughs> and then even as uh, our graduate students go through the program do are they able to say i don't know 
<laughs> or do they just say, it's just not answer the question by talking about something totally else, something totally different that they do know, right? So, so those are really powerful things. It's like the most important set of words you can say <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, so in this um, line of thinking about deductive versus inductive reasoning, one of the things that you had mentioned possibly discussing is the idea that stats are needed to support the data rather than to replace the data. So what do you mean by that? I mean that in a few ways. So the thing that I find, especially if I take someone new into my lab who's in our undergraduate program or um, a new graduate student from, from other place, I think it's the same issue with training and uh, most places, the way that we train stats, um, they'll do their first project and they'll analyze the data and the first thing they do is come to me with a 33, p 33 page printout right. of SPSS stats and they point to the thing that says P of 0.05 or not 0.05. <laughs> right. Ta-da! <laughs> yeah. Done. And then I, go, I say, show me the data and they say, well, I don't have, I, I haven't actually, you know, plotted it. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, and then I have to say, okay, throw it your 33 page thing, <laughs> thing. And, and the first thing I want you to do is go plot your data. And I want you to look, um, look at your data and see what, what are the trends before you even do any statistics. Do you understand what main effects and interactions and things like that are? And can you just look at your data and see what you think is going on? And then the stats can tell you if that's reliable enough to make a big deal about. But, but until you've looked at it, and that's, this is especially true if you have complicated data. So things, that, just to give one example, I had a, an honor student last year who had... Um, a five by two design mm. um, mm -hmm. and we were hypothesizing an interaction and right. <laughs> he left it to the last minute and then he showed up in his talk and he analyzed it with every possible t-test and you can't understand data that complicated right. without graphing it you just can't uh, right so that, so that's always my first thing is, is just get in the habit before you do any stats of looking at it for a couple of reasons. One, to see what makes sense, but especially one, one thing we really emphasize a lot in my lab is quality assurance mm -hmm. of looking at the data, what makes sense, what doesn't make sense. Uh, you get into things, this happens a lot with students too. They come and they say it's P of 0.05 and then you, you look at it and it's backwards and then right. you realize they mislabeled some columns in their spreadsheet or something and yeah. um, they, they didn't catch it because they didn't look at the data. So that's one thing I mean is just really Focusing on the data, using the stats as a backup. Mm -hmm. And I would say the same thing for writing. So in psychology, what we train people, I, don't, I haven't looked at the APA manual in a long time, but mm -hmm. the way I was taught is uh, you take a data set, let's say like that five by two design, and you say, um, we ran an ANOVA and uh, this was significant, this was significant, and that wasn't, and the post talk showed blah, 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 and then this is what it means. And you got to, as a reader, you've got to go through all, all this stuff, and you've got all these numbers in parentheses, and, mm -hmm. and, and often I find statistics sections are really hard to make sense of. Um, so what we, when I try to train my trainees to do is plot the data. Mm -hmm. First thing you do is direct the reader to yeah. the graph, go look at the graph, this is what you should notice, and then talk about how your statistics support the right. take-home messages you want them to get. Mm -hmm. So even with a lot of the conventional stuff, sometimes you'll read the whole section and you won't understand what the data is telling you. Um, so, so just really, I think, focusing on 
what is the data showing and, and, and the stats are there to bolster it. The stats aren't a replacement. Um, and of course, there's lots of changes in the field now with questioning the P of 0.05 holy grail and a lot of the ways that people do P hacking and whether we should be do, doing Bayesian statistics and, and all of these other sorts of approaches. But um, regardless of the specific approach, I think just making sure that, that we value the data in and of itself and also, this is part of it, that we, as we're looking at the data, not only are we testing the predictions that we made in the introduction of the paper, but are we being open-minded enough to see other interesting trends that may help us come up with new things. Maybe we need to do another test if it's really exploratory, um, but to see, because um, a lot of times I, we, we teach very strongly hypothesis testing. So you have a hypothesis, you make a prediction, you do the statistical tests, and if it's P of, P of 0.05, yay, you were right, and right. if it's P of 0.06, no, <laughs> it's the end of your PhD. <laughs> right. No. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, um, uh, I think uh, that there's, there's a lot of merit to just trying to, to see what other things are going on. Usually if we're testing, most of the most interesting discoveries we've made um, have been things where the data have turned out differently than we expected. Right. And then you go, oh, wait, <laughs> the brain doesn't work the way I think it did. Now we mm. have to figure out how does it really work? And, and, and that's often more fun. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's, I, I, I had the same sort of training experience, which is I was taught to... Um, First, what are the means? Look at the means, see what the pattern of results are, and then the, statist the statistics are just to support that, that pattern of observations that you already made with your eyes. <laughs> so maybe I'm a vision scientist, so it's kind of a bias there that I trust my vision, but, but uh, I, I, that, that is a very good approach. Well, I like, uh, some people call it the interocular trauma yes. test. Does yep. it hit you between the eyes? That's right. So, That's and right. if you've got really nice data, then sometimes you don't even need the statistics yep. because it's really clear what's going on. Yep. Um, so Ken Nakayama, one of my uh, mentors in grad school, always said, statistics is for people with bad data, <laughs> which I don't think is true. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but, right. but it's an interesting perspective. So right. his perspective was always that, um, you know, if you had really good designs and interesting phenomena that were really robust, it right. wasn't going to come down to whether you needed statistics and whether it was 0.04 or 0.06. It right. was going to be just yeah. <laughs> big effects. Smack you between the eyes. <laughs> right. uh, yeah. Unfortunately, not all of science is like that, so right. we do need the stats. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Okay, so that also get, relates to this other question that you kind of, or this topic that you kind of mm. brought up about why fishing expeditions aren't always bad. So this is sort of related to the, sometimes there might be something in your data that you didn't expect, right? Yeah, and so I think one of the things my lab is probably known for is is kind of you know going off the beaten track and <laughs> doing crazy yeah. things. Uh, so we've done a lot of things, just pioneering different um, crazy things with uh, brain imaging and and trying to. So it was a one big inspiration for me is just trying to think about the real world and and think about what is it that a lot of our uh, paradigms are missing about the real world. There's a lot of holes in that mm -hmm. that transition between yes. um, psychology and neuroscience paradigms, and 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 what a 
a creature needs to do in, in the environment in which they evolved and developed. So we've kind of taken that approach and then um, uh, used that to look at a lot of different phenomena. Um, and we've done all sorts of crazy things about having people reaching and grasping in brain scanners and um, uh, putting crazy conveyor belts that put real objects in the scanner and stuff like that. Um, Sorry, I lost the. What was the question originally? <laughs> right. So, so when you're, you can cut that right. Part out. So, <laughs> so what is the proportion of fishing? Oh, the fishing expeditions, right? Versus so, targeted kill that you, that right. you do. <laughs> so, what one thing we've often done is we'll start. So, so and I, I'm going to mix a lot of metaphors here. I have sure. too many mixed metaphors here. So, on one oh, hand, we can talk about fishing the, expeditions <laughs> right. that you go out and you just sort of see what you find by investigating a phenomenon. Uh huh. Um, the other way I phrase it sometimes is if you're going into a new domain, typically what you want to do is test the extremes of that domain before you try to titrate smaller effects. So mm. to give you one example, we're doing a lot of research now on the differences between real objects and images. So uh, mm. one of the lines I often use is you can't pound a nail with a photograph of a hammer. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's and true. so what, what are some uh, of the differences? And there's lots of potential differences between real objects and images. But to start off with, we said, okay, let's just test those two extremes yeah. and see what kind of differences we find in behavior and brain activation. And then since then, and then we've been, you know, spending a lot of time thinking about well, what just based on introspection and, and thinking from first principles, what might some of the differences be, and then doing more and more subtle experiments. And now we're moving into virtual reality and so on to see, well, where is VR on that spectrum? So we're, hmm. we've got these big effects, and now we're looking to see, well, if we try to tease them apart, what factors are driving those differences? But the fishing expedition, just you know, doing some things initially, then the, the initial experiments were far from perfect. They haven't resolved all the different components, but they showed that there was a difference. And then, then you just keep doing follow-up things to, to understand it better. I would never put that in a grant. <laughs> so one of right, the killer, right. the grant killer statements you can yes. have is we're going on a fishing expedition. <laughs> right. or, or explore. Yeah, we're going to explore. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It, it just kills a grant, and you can't yeah. write grants that way, so you always... the. Uh, the usual thing with grants, most granting agencies are quite conservative, and so right. you basically do the experiments, and then you propose that you're going to do the experiments that you just did right. with very clear hypotheses that you already know how they turned right. out. But, but I think that pushes science towards maybe being a little less creative and more dull. Um, mm -hmm. And and so realistically, what I do, I do I do that. I do the experiments, and then I write the grant, <laughs> or right. I get at least pilot data, and then I write the grant about the pilot data. But meanwhile, we're doing fishing expeditions on other topics to see what's interesting, and then picking. And you know, a lot of the fishing expeditions don't work, mm -hmm. um, so you you have to do some of that. And you, uh, another part of the mixed metaphor that I tell students is. Um, and, and this is a bad metaphor for students, um, but investing. <laughs> so mm. students never invest. They don't have any money. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but well, we still don't. <laughs> we still don't have money, and I still don't know much about investing because right, I'm right. a professor and I right. don't make that much money. Is my money, car but... an investment? <laughs> <laughs> but what they tell you in investing is is to have a diversified portfolio. Yep. So you want some really secure things like yep. bonds that are going to give you a fixed rate of return. Right. And, and make sure that you have enough money to retire, 
but then you also want to invest in some riskier stuff that might give you a higher rate of return and right. and scientifically that can be a good strategy too so on the one hand you're you're doing some things that are pretty safe bets but then maybe at the same time you're doing some fishing expeditions to see where can you take your research next um, and then the fishing expeditions of course as you progress start to become less high risk because you know that uh, they become more tangible but um, I, I just worry in some ways that because fishing expeditions have become such taboo in grants that it mm -hmm. discourages people from doing them at all and, right. and, and I don't think that's necessarily a good strategy for the fields as a whole yeah and I think there's I've thought about this a lot too um, uh, when I was being trained and I try to train other people to be creative with their tasks and mm -hmm. that you can actually just create a new task you, of course, you need to go to the literature and verify that Posner already did it. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, but generally, you can you know, revive an old task or something like this. Yeah. And, 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 and I've thought about why is it that we just use the same? Why is it that we get stuck in these paradigms and these tasks and, and plumb and plumb and plumb to really figure out what's going on? And the truth is, is that it does translate into a publication more quickly. It does, and, yeah. And I think there tends to, and it tends to be this investment strategy, which is, wait, but I need stuff to pay off now because I want to get a job. And as opposed to what could be the case, which is you take a little more time, you develop a task or a variant of a task that's your own baby that you can really play with, and then that turns into a career as opposed mm -hmm. to a publication. And it's hard to... It's hard to defer that gratification, I think, for some people. Anyway, that's just my theory of mind experiment about why is it that f that former Jeff just <laughs> did the same task, or you know what I mean. Yeah. It, it's it's easy for everybody to wanna. Have and it, it depends pay off. what what your timeline is. Yeah. So if you're a let's say you're you're a master's student, you've got two years to do a project. You yeah. don't want some risky fishing expedition. Right. Right. Um, that, that's not going to work. You want something that's doable in one or two years, and so you've got to go with something safer. Mm -hmm. um, but then th there are sometimes things where you can... I had one, one grad student who, d well, he took a, a fairly new paradigm, and he made a, an interesting discovery with one of his grad student colleagues. And then they, the, the, the cool thing is if you do have some time to, to develop a new paradigm, then it can open up this whole new world. Mm -hmm. And so what, what he ended up doing was um, we got a whole bunch of honor students in the lab and he just gave each of them some sub-project to follow up. And he ended up, when he left his PhD, he had a killer CV because he'd found this new domain and he just had so many cool experiments that they could do with it. Um, that was an exceptional case, but, but it was a success story, I think. Yeah. So related to that, this topic that you brought up earlier about going from pictures of objects to real objects reminds me of kind of what's going on in my own career where I study visual memory and I use real world objects mm -hmm. and here we are at Vision Sciences Society and a lot of people use very controlled visual stimuli. And one of the very common questions that I get is, well, have you thought about these minor differences between this picture versus this picture, right? And I keep wanting to kind of big picture it and say, well, yeah, but these minor differences are gonna exist in the real world and I'm trying to make contact with real world vision. So this is a little bit selfish of me to ask you this question, <laughs> but what, you know, as scientists who want to control all of the variables, how do you deal with, or what pushback have you gotten 
how do you deal with these comments maybe from reviewers about, wow, well, if you're going to go to an object, then now you're dealing with all these different factors that you can't control as well. Do you? Yeah, one framework I have when I give talks on this is um, I talk about two different ways that vision science works. So mo most vision scientists work in what I call a build-up approach. And so if you think of something... Um, the, the sorts of stimuli that vision scientists use, there's a lot of things like dot patterns and gradings and lines and bars and, and things like that, uh, single targets in an uncluttered environment, all of these kind of things. Um, and I call that the build-up approach. So if you think of something like, like how do we see the world in 3D, we mm -hmm. can show, for example, you can take a random dot pattern, and, and if you make the differences between the two eyes um, appropriately, then you'll see that one thing appears to be floating in front of another. And so it's clear that that's a sufficient cue to perceive depth. But that doesn't necessarily mean in the real world that it's that valuable a cue because there's a lot of redundancies in the real world and so you might get different answers. So I, I talk about the, the build-up approach of going from the simple stimuli and building them up into more complicated stimuli. But I also talk about my lab's approach, which I call the tear-down approach. So you start with the real world and then you start reducing different things, mm. you take away different cues, mm -hmm. and I don't think you necessarily have to reach the same conclusions. You might find that mm. a particular cue is sufficient but not necessary in the real world. Um, and, and so um, I think, again, it's kind of this, this idea of finding niches where there's not that many people. The build-up approach is really overcrowded, yeah. <laughs> and the tear-down approach is wide open. <laughs> so, um, well, and, KG Tanaka in the past, yeah. maybe. Yeah, but, that's true. Yeah, but, but, yeah. Uh, N of two. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, there, there's a lot of room, and, and that that makes it easier too. Yeah, uh, it, it makes it makes it both harder and easier. It makes it harder because you have to develop the paradigms, but right. it makes it easier because you're not competing with a hundred other people to have a footnote uh, to some yeah. phenomenon. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. So, I, I, and I, I certainly, I'm not arguing that, that we don't need the build-up approach. I think it's really valuable. I just think that, that we can spread out our energies um, to, to look at different levels and, and not all crowd into the same phenomena. Yeah. Right. Okay, so I took you, thank you for saying that. I took you off topic a little bit. The other, one, the other item that you listed in this issue of inductive versus deductive reasoning was quality assurance. Ah, yes. Yeah, um... We teach some things about that, I think, in statistics. Students will learn about outliers and how to screen for them and so on. A lot of this comes back to what I was mentioning earlier, just of the importance of really looking at your data mm -hmm. because that's often the best way to, to spot errors. They might be weird subjects. They might be some programming error that you made in some step, especially. And I think this is what's been happening in neuroscience, the analyses have gotten more and more complicated and there's there's so many steps um, in, in processing data now. You're not uh, just thinking about, say, for example, functional MRI. When I started it, we would just, you know, pull the graphs up on the screen, the time courses, and then it would be totally the interocular trauma test. <laughs> right. It would just smack you across the eyes, like, yes, this area is responding to this stimulus really vigorously. Right. And now we're doing all these fancy um, uh, machine learning things and so on, where there's a lot of um, a lot of assumptions. So uh, I'm just a really strong believer in doing 
sanity checks along the way we do so so that's often uh, some of the stuff we'll do particularly with brain imaging data is just let's do some sanity checks first and make yeah. sure can we replicate known things are we getting good clean time courses um, all these things before we, we get into any fancy methods um, and some of that comes from from what we've done uh, the stuff we've done on grasping in the scanner um, was very prone to artifacts and so it really mm got me trained to look carefully at the data and make sure that it was clean. But but again, I'd say when new students come into the lab, they're, they're in such a rush to see if P is 0.05 or not yeah. that they often rush through all those other steps and they, they don't make sure that they've got good quality data. And then sometimes that can completely mess up your results, uh, either give you erroneous results or maybe you have some nice results and you've just got so much noise because there's something weird going on. Right. I, th I think those things really take a long time to learn, though. I, th I actually suspect that's when my students need me more than any other situation is for these quality assurance steps. Yeah. Um, because, um, you know, human electrophysiology has been around for a really long time, and we do know about a lot of things that are impossible, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> or, you know, things that you can't get. And, yeah, and there's what... a lot of the, the knack, I would call it, for different <laughs> yeah. types of experiments that, that right. are, are never articulated in the papers. Right, right. And, and so, uh, you know, looking at plotting your baseline, um, you know, maybe inner trial intervals, you know, just plot the saccade artifacts, maybe. So, so I, it's an interesting situation in which... Um, I mean, it may have taken me longer to really be able to look at waveforms and diagnose the problem with what was going on in our recording or our analyses than anything else. Well, I don't know if anything else, but it's an interesting perceptual learning task uh, true, and, yeah. and problem-solving task where, where it's, you know, you're 10 years in and then you're able to look at someone's waveforms and say, oh, no, that can't happen, you know, <laughs> and, and that, that didn't, that took a while. Uh, and, you know, I think it, uh, if anything, that's what you really learn in those individual meetings with people when you're sitting down looking at, looking at the data right, together, right, yeah. hemodynamic functions or, or ERP waveforms or, or even behavioral bar graphs, right? Um, you know, you can, you can really kind of transmit some of that stuff to trainees, I think, in that kind of way, because they get to see you go through the steps, which is okay. Your baseline looks good. Uh, your, you know, the early responses from sensory cortex look right, you know, whatever that means, <laughs> you know. So it's an interesting process to, to, to learn um, because you're right. Without those things, you're, you know, you could have been recording event-related potentials from a pumpkin. Right. <laughs> and, and maybe they, because they have electrical responses too, you could have gotten a P of 0.05, you know. Yeah, so and, and there's and the, the infamous uh, dead fish. Yes, the uh, salmon. Dead salmon <laughs> yep. experiment in fMRI. Right, um. right, right. Yeah, I got really interested in the history of, of recording electrical potentials from things, and, and I found the electrical potential recordings from plants that exist. Really? And that you can cut a plant on a very distant like runner and then and you can see that signal propagate through the plant so they can say oh i got cut over there and the whole plant knows really bizarre things wow. um n not really useful for most people <laughs> but it is one of the things that like we have the benefit of learning with decades of stuff and uh, i guess part of the point of this is how do we communicate this to the next generation mm -hmm. in a way that's relevant unlike plants getting cut yeah. maybe but 
Well, you're right. A lot of it does come down to the, the apprenticeship model and right. sort of working through a problem with someone who's got more experience and, and figuring out more. I think it, a lot of it is more implicit than explicit. Just what are the what are the strategies for for doing sanity checks and quality assurance and so on? Right. Which is going to be field specific, but right, right. That's uh, one of the things. I, I mean, I still uh, as a senior investigator now, I still really enjoy playing with the data with students and yeah. uh, figuring out how to how to analyze it and, and and what sequence of steps especially as i say as, as the the analyses keep getting more and more complicated right and this can be probably one of the reasons it takes a while to learn a new technique really kind of be a a, a good practitioner of a new technique is because you have to learn these things to really know whether you're collecting garbage or not and I, I think it's really tricky now. So it's one thing I've been wrestling with in, in training people is that um, as we get into all of these complicated techniques and complicated analyses, mm -hmm. the students have to spend a lot of time learning the methods and, and the analyses. But I think it's really important that we make sure that they're still learning how to think about the theory. And it's hard to do all of that. It's a challenging time in yeah in the field I think to to get that so you, I see a lot of papers and so on where I, I would describe them as state-of-the-art methods asking stupid questions <laughs> um, and so what, what you really you always have to keep in mind ultimately what you want to do is is you know it doesn't even necessarily have to be state-of-the-art methods sometimes you can right. do great studies with very simple methods but mm -hmm. but the key thing is are you answering a good question and are you using the technique that's most appropriate to, um, and the strategy that's most appropriate for asking that. Uh, and a lot of that comes with experience too and, and with just brainstorming. So uh, a lot of times too when, when trainees are working with supervisors, a good starting point is just to to start having some discussions and using each other as sounding boards to try to figure out uh, what, what are some of the interesting ideas and and coming back to what I said earlier about my supervisor saying ideas are cheap, you do realize as you as you get further along and you have a lot of ideas, you can do uh, almost a Darwinian selection of your ideas. So you can say, okay, that's an okay idea, but it's gonna, right. you know, if it, a question to ask um, in choosing ideas is, well, what's what's the most likely headline that could come out of this and mm. how interesting is that going to be? And sometimes it's like, yeah, that would be okay. It would be a footnote in the field and it wouldn't really do that much. Or, well, hey, if that turned out that way, it would be really cool, but the likelihood of it working isn't very high. Mm -hmm. You know, Ultimately, what you want is, is questions where the answer is going to be interesting and especially if it's going to be interesting no matter how it turns out. Um, those are the good kind of projects. And yeah. So having a lot of, uh, and again, it's one of these things you have to get over your insecurities of pitching ideas and, and just, you know, get used to the idea of I'm just going to spew out as many ideas as I can and then we'll yeah. do a selection of the best ones. Right. If you're too inhibited to, to try it, then, then sometimes you can't get started. Right. When I was a postdoc, I used to go to um, the brown bags with uh, the goal of I'm going to... I'm going to think of a way to test 
their hypothesis with what I know how to do. Uh-huh. That's, a, that's <laughs> that, a good exercise. Yeah, it's like a cover task. <laughs> it's interesting, too, because I, I more or less started it so that I wouldn't get too sleepy, and so I would stay pay attention. And so this, like, attention-demanding cover task, you know, it's like detecting the fixation point dimming or something (laughs) but it's the talk equivalent of that and then you know and I think I just got lucky that that in fact is a great exercise for thinking through these things of like well you know what's a good idea well here's what I could do that but there's no other way that that could turn out based on what I already know so that's not really a good idea (laughs) you know the alternative hypothesis that I set up in the paper is uh, you know, or we don't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's also really good to have other people that can um, that you can bounce things off of. So, mm-hmm. so getting some calibration about what's a good idea or not, and and, and sometimes that the student that I mentioned earlier that found the the new phenomenon and got a lot of publications out of it, he ended up. Um, I went on sabbatical and left him alone, which was the best thing I ever did because <laughs> <laughs> um, he he ended up. Um, talking more to one of his peers who was also a really bright guy. They're both now professors. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they ended up talking to one another a lot and bouncing ideas off each other, and they found a very synergistic collaboration. Um, uh, and, uh, and I think in some ways that's even a better way to do it because you, when it's peer-to-peer, then you don't have some of the anxieties and so mm-hmm. on. Of, well, I'm going to bounce an idea to, off my advisor, and what if they tell me that it's stupid? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Mm-hmm. So, just you know, trying trying different things, talking to other people after talks as well, and say, oh, I was right. at that talk. I thought it would be really interesting if they did that. Right. See, see if it resonates or not, uh, and just practice, practice, thinking about things, and don't be too um, upset if someone goes, nah, that's not a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You can't get used to that. Yeah. Okay, so as as we start to wrap things up, one of the things that I think is so interesting about you is your website. So <laughs> you have a lot of really good advice for different levels at your career on your website. And well, I sort of have a two-part question here. So one is, where did this come from? What motivated you to sort of compile this advice and then the other is maybe can you pick one or two that you think is some golden nuggets that you have on there? Oh, I should have looked at my website beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> you sent me something the other day about uh, yeah, yeah. Was that was Stephen Jay Gould's thing. Right. Yeah. I've totally forgotten about that because yeah. I haven't checked my website. Well, in you have such. I mean, you have such interesting things on here about scientific writing and even how to get good reference letters how to read a journal article and then you include some other people's advice on there you know and you go to like how to use an apostrophe you know what i mean <laughs> like where did this so where did this come from where did you it came from this? from two places really one was it was kind of the i wish i knew syndrome mm-hmm. so yeah. the things like for example how to read a journal article that was something that it took me a really long time as an undergrad and a grad student to learn how to do because i was in the the mode that you are in an undergrad where you feel like, you know, your eyes have to look over every word yeah. in the article. And mm-hmm. in those days it was paper and you have to highlight everything mm-hmm. um, and you don't necessarily digest it. And, and so there were a lot of lessons that came. It wasn't for me until I had to do my comprehensive exams and mm-hmm. I had, um, uh, in those days it was pre-PDF and, and I had all of the articles I was supposed to read printed out and they filled a photocopy uh, paper box right and it was kind of this 
realization and seeing the stack of papers that I was not going to be able to use my conventional approach to reading papers and, and, and then you realize you've got to find strategies to, to get the, the important things out of a paper and the first thing that you have to do is figure out why you're reading it. So are you reading it because you want to learn something about the field, in which case the introduction and the discussion might be better? Do you want to understand a specific technique, in which case the methods might be right. more important? So. You, there's a lot of tips in that, and that was just based on the stuff that I wish I knew. The other part of it is just um, having taught a lot of students over the years, I got bored saying the same things over uh -huh. and over again. So I have a, I forget what it's called, something like highly opinionated principles for writing, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. which is just uh, some of the things. Um, that should have been the title of our book. <laughs> <laughs> just some things, uh, and especially as I... I um, get more and more time pressed and I, I want to be able to to read articles and get the gist of it I, I realize that a lot of articles aren't written in a good way that enables you to do that mm -hmm. and and a lot of things are are very cumbersome and and if an article is well written you can understand it in 10 or 15 minutes if you're if you know some of the background in the field whereas if it's not well written then you, you might have to spend a, an hour or two on it so right. so i spend a lot of time with my trainees trying to teach them how to write and actually a lot of it is unteaching them things they've been trained yeah. of so things that, that they typically get trained on like you have to write the apparatus section before you write the procedure mm -hmm. which drives me nuts you know you, you start off with these things like the table was 1.7 meters by 2.4 meters so <laughs> <laughs> right. it won't replicate if it's not <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and in fact it's always things the students always do this it's 1.732265 meters yeah. <laughs> like right. it matters in the first place or they'll, right. they'll describe all the apparatus and you have no idea what they're even doing so, right. so right. just teaching people how to to write in a compelling way um so so some of that is just from different workshops i've been doing some things now too this has been kind of fun with um i've been taking on more undergraduate honors students lately and so we um we've done things where we'll take um someone's data from the previous year and uh write the results section together so ah. they get to see before mm. they've got their own data, they get to see what, what are the strategies for writing it. Some of the things I mentioned earlier, like take your head out of your butt and go look at the graph. Yeah. This is what the graph is telling you, and here's how the stats support um, right. support that finding. Um, so we'll, we'll play with some of that. So, yeah, it's, it's been a bit of a mix, uh, unfortunately. There's a lot of stuff I'd love to add to the site. Uh, it's just hard to find the time. Yeah. Yeah, well. And some of it is, is pet peeves, too. I'm working on one of uh, talks, just of different things about yeah. talk <laughs> slides and so on. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of that comes from you know, going to bad student talks where yeah. um, where they don't have things clearly labeled and, and mm -hmm. they're using fonts that are too small and things like that. Right. Yeah, what my, one of my pet peeves about students' talks is that they love to end with a limitation slide. And I'm like, why are you ending with why your study sucks? Why are, <laughs> what are you thinking? What end you with doing? a bang, not yes, a whimper. Right? Yes, yeah. so yeah. funny. Such a, I don't know where they all get this idea that that's what they're supposed to do, right? Okay, so I have just one more question then. I don't know if you have yeah. another one, Jeff, to close out with. So Jeff and I talk a lot about time management. So yeah. we are... Um, Obviously, we work from home together a lot, and we sort of kick around what we do and what's a, what's a time suck and why are we doing this. And one of the things that I recently did was take my email off my phone because I realized it doesn't ever 
help me or improve my life or mm, you know interesting. Yeah. I'll read my emails and then I'll mark them as read and, and then you don't go, go back, back to them, to them. <laughs> or I mean there's been not, there done that yeah. Yeah. still there still doing that <laughs> yeah, right <laughs> right, yeah. right. Um, and also there's no email that's gonna significantly improve my life so why do I want this to have access to me all the time there's right? a quote I, I put up uh, when I go on on my summer holidays uh, I only do this once a year because I don't want to annoy people but I, I put up these funny vacation messages and so one of them was a quote that said uh, email is other people's to-do list for you <laughs> <laughs> that's great yes yeah. I mean this yeah. is the point right so one of the things that we've talked about is that maybe what we need to do is not open our email till like noon so that we don't let other people's to-do list for us right. impact our writing time or our thinking time, right? And I'm sure we'll never perfect this, but it's mm. an ongoing conversation in our house. And so I'm wondering if you have any things that you do or think or think about changing in terms of time management. I mean, the away message is a pretty big victory, quite frankly. Yeah. But yeah. It's, it's a huge thing, and it's something I'm still struggling with of email, and it's hard sometimes. I, I like to have those rules, but then it's often the case where I need to look something up right. and the piece of information in the email, so I got to go in, and then I get yeah. get derailed. But I did right. find it made a huge difference. I've done a couple of sabbaticals in Italy, which has been fantastic, not just because I've been in Italy, but because of the time difference. Uh -huh. And so that would mean I would yes. get up in the morning, yeah. and I would be able to work till... Um, you know, middle of the day mm -hmm. um, without any new emails yeah. coming in. Uh, and then I could spend the afternoon with email and, and Skyping with mm -hmm. my students and so on. But just having a few hours of the day when, when I could ignore that stuff was, right. was amazing. Yeah. Um, we experienced that last year, too, for the first time. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so, so go away for a little bit in yeah. a different time zone. It's yeah. not that plausible a strategy. <laughs> I think a lot of it, I mean, the, the main time management suggestion I give to my students is uh, making sure they understand the 80-20 rule that 20% or what is it that 80% um, of the credit that you get depends on 20% of the work that you do. And mm -hmm. so you want to make sure that you're doing that important 20% before the 80% that mm -hmm. doesn't count for as much. So mm -hmm. so things, for example, well, publications, of course, uh, are really for, for most students, the thesis for students, um, mm -hmm. uh, ultimately turning into publications are the biggest part of that. Other things like um, coursework and so on is important, but it, you, you always have to make sure that you're prioritizing the most important stuff, that, uh, that it's more critical that you make progress on your thesis than that you right. um, have inbox zero or... Right, <laughs> right, yeah. That damn goal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm right now, I just got my inbox down from 425 to 225. Wow. <laughs> Sometimes I just select them all and mark them as red. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I did? This is a good strategy. I, I created this email folder that I call Not Now, which uh -huh. should really be called uh -huh. Not Ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah. it gives me this ability to say, I'm not going to deal with this now. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. smart. Yeah, that is good. Yeah, those those right. things where you feel like you should think about it, but it's not really important and not really urgent. It's just, well, you know, I should know something about that. So you just yeah. get it out of your inbox. Yeah. Right. It's still there. You know that it's there if you do want to go back, but, but it's not taking up your attention. Right. Yeah. Well... Jody is a member of the governing board of the society we're at, so we should probably let her go and and govern. 
And it's going to go to the beach. <laughs> We're going to go to the beach. Let's go around the beach. <laughs> but uh, I wanted to, I think we both wanted to thank you so yeah, much for your you time. Yeah, thank you so much. This, that, this was, was amazing. Fun. Thank you so much, Jody. Okay, thanks a lot.